I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. James S. Coleman's 1966 Equality of Opportunity Study, also known as the Coleman Report, is now widely regarded as the most influential piece of education research in American history. But few may know that the federal agency that commissioned it initially hoped that its findings would be ignored. In fact, the U.S. Office of Education chose to release the Coleman Report not just on a weekend, but on a weekend coinciding with a major national holiday, the 4th of July. Its initial release drew barely a mention in the national news, which was just what top officials in Lyndon Johnson's administration intended. Why were they so concerned? I'm Marty West, Associate Editor of Education Next, and joining me today is Anna Egalite, Assistant Professor of Education at North Carolina State University and the author of How Family Background Influences Student Achievement, which appears in the Spring 2016 issue of the journal commemorating the 50th anniversary of Jim Coleman's landmark report. Thanks for taking the time to talk, Anna. Hi, Marty. Glad to be with you. So why was the Johnson administration so worried about how the Coleman report would be received? So, I mean, Elementary and and Secondary Education Act was a huge achievement for Lyndon B. Johnson because it was ushered in so quickly um, within his first 100 days in office um, and had represented this bipartisan effort and a huge investment in disadvantaged students increasing funding through Title I. And that still remains the single largest investment that the federal government makes in education today. So out comes this report saying, oh, you know, family actually matters so much and school inputs are not as important as maybe we once thought, and it was completely at odds with the theory of action behind the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. So just so readers are aware, the finding that they were so concerned about was Coleman's conclusion that most of the variation in student achievement appeared to be due to factors outside of the control of the schools and the level of resources in the schools had more to do with differences in the family background of students. How, How did he reach that conclusion? Right. You've summed it up nicely. Well, so part of this um, that's important to to understand and what I emphasize a little bit in the essay is that uh, Coleman was restricted in what he could measure, right? So the measures of school inputs are a little bit crude. It's things like class size, things that we can measure about teachers that are recorded in administrative data sets. And so they partitioned the variance. They said, well, some students do really well, some students do really poorly. What factors are associated that can explain that variation? And they were able to say, well, those factors associated with family background appear to explain more of that variation than those factors associated with things that schools um, control and things that school policy can influence. And you and some of the other authors in the special issue of the journal on the Coleman Report also talk about some of the analytic challenges even with the variables that they were able to measure. So, for example, the fact that if you start by trying to see how much you can explain with family background, if one of the ways in which families influence student achievement is by putting them in a school with better resources, you might mistakenly conclude that it's the family rather than the school, and it's really the family operating through the school. Is that right? 
That's totally right. And that is the challenge that we still face today is how you isolate the effect of changes in one variable. So in this case, maybe it's family income or fam parents' education um, or other aspects of family background that we think are important from the effects of other changes that might be going on at the same time. So unmeasured circumstances, things like um, parental stress or moving to a new neighborhood um, or like you described, um, families selecting a particularly strong neighborhood with great public schools or private schools and then choosing to send their kids to those schools. So, you know, when you're petitioning the variance and you're trying to explain, was it family or was it school, it can be a little hard to disentangle that causal pathway. But even if we're not convinced by Coleman's method for addressing this question, I think surely few would doubt that family background does, in fact, play an important role in explaining how students fare academically. And your essay does a nice job of sort of walking through different components of this construct we often use socioeconomic status and to capture differences in family background and how they might influence how students are doing. So for example, you start with parental education. Oftentimes it's said that if you had only one variable and you're trying to explain how students are doing, you want to look at how much education the mother has completed. What have we learned on that topic over time? Yeah, so parents' education is, you know, we can even just intuitively figure out, like, that that must be important. Um, if you think about the way that parents interact with their children, um, parents who have, you know, been to college or, or even just finished high school have broader vocabulary, and they tend to employ that vocabulary when they're interacting with their children. Um, and also, more educated parents, when they're um, having a conversation with their kids, they don't tend to give orders or directives as often as they pose um, choices to the, to the child. Child. Do you want to do X or do Y? And then reasoning through with them. Um, and so those kind of conversational um, benefits can accumulate. So that's something that when a child is just a toddler that can be begun. Um, but you can imagine how that would accumulate as the child grows older and, and there's more books in the home and other things associated with the parents themselves being educated. One thing that I also found really interesting to think about was how parents who've been through college tend to have friends who've been through college, right? Because they met in their 20s um, and they maintain those networks. And that really um, can 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 generate social capital and cultural capital for the kids of those of the parents in that that network. So your mom might not know not, know much about a degree in psychology if she completed a degree in something else, but she might have a friend who does. And so for for that child who's interested in pursuing that kind of career, they have someone to go to, someone to tap, someone to ask about. You know, where do I go for more information? Those kind of things. So it sounds like we've made a lot of progress towards understanding some of the mechanisms by which. Uh, educational advantages can be transmitted from one generation to the next. And I think you do a nice job of showing how that can be the case with respect to family income, family structure, parental incarceration. I think the question that comes to mind for me is what implications does all of this have for policy? And you write that policymakers face a choice that they need to decide whether to try to improve schools so as to overcome the effects of differences in family background, or whether they should instead try to directly address the sources of family background effects. But then I, I, I read you as saying that this is something of a false choice. So, so where do you come down? How should we be thinking about these issues? 
Right. So it's really hard to draw a bright line and say one matters over the other. And so I sort of say, well, well how about a holistic approach? We simultaneously want to strengthen both sources. Um, schools can really play a wonderful compensating role for, for kids who are from um, a background where the, the family influences aren't there. You know, they don't have those advantages from birth. Um, but there are also, um, there's an argument to be made for policies that will strengthen family ties. And those are, going to, those are going to have wonderful effects. That's why when I'm choosing those types of school-based policies to recommend, I, I, I pay attention to, well, which of those are also going to be building up other bonds, other social bonds. And so, for instance, I talk about school choice. Well, that allows kids to access a private school, which will be part of a network, um, and oftentimes it's a religious network. And so they're connecting with other families. Um, their parents are involved. And, and so there's this, like, dense network of ties that develop and can play this compensating role. You also talk about the promised neighborhood approach, which I think uh, is situated quite in a quite different place than school choice policies on the political spectrum oftentimes. That's right. And, and so for anyone who's not familiar with those, these are um, very targeted programs that um, pick, you know, the, the, they pick one very impoverished and disadvantaged neighborhood to focus a lot of attention on. So that, that can look like um, introducing charter schools, but also job fairs for the parents or parenting classes for first-time moms and dads, um, crime prevention, neighborhood revitalization, and this whole host of very concentrated services that's targeting a neighborhood to try and turn it around. And it's, it's interesting how those efforts often, uh, in order to be effective, it seems, need to include efforts to improve uh, the schools, and that many school-based programs, as you just highlighted, can also try to work through families to strengthen families and uh, enable them to provide better support for their children, which I think illustrates the extent to which this is something of a false choice. That's right, Marty. And, you know, there's such a strong argument to be made for strengthening families, and it doesn't have to fall on one side of sort of the political preferences of, of a policymaker, that it, it is possible to have um, social services that are operating through schools to, to strengthen families. And that's so important because I think oftentimes when someone invokes family background as a potential influence on student achievement, they're accused of presenting excuses for school failures or reasons why we might not want to work as hard to improve schools in the short run. And it may not be a fair characterization, I hear you saying. I agree. And I think, you know, for some people who are very um, oriented towards finding solutions, they can find that exasperating. And so I think that it's important to acknowledge that family background plays a huge role, has a great influence, but let's just not stop there and sort of throw our hands up in exasperation and say, so what are you going to do? Well, there are mitigating policies that we can, we can experiment with and, you know, make the case that we really need to be considering when we're writing these types of policies into law, well, how can we introduce the evaluation component? Will measures be collected? Will they be consistent for kids in getting the policy and kids not getting it? Will there be a treatment in a control group? And the types of questions that researchers can then go back and actually analyze an impact. And so building a knowledge base all the time. And if we wait for the sources of family background effects to be eliminated before we turn to improving schools, it seems likely that we'll be waiting for a long time. That's absolutely right. You know, if, if a building is on fire, you don't wait until the fire is out. And to, you know, you, you want to go in and rescue some kids and, and actually, um, you know, act in the meantime. Well, I think that's a great way of summing up where you left me as a reader. And uh, I would encourage other listeners to uh, find your article, How Family Background Influences Student Achievement, 
in the spring 2016 issue of Education Next at educationnext.org. There you can also find a whole series of articles commissioned to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Jim Coleman's landmark report. Thanks, Anna, for taking the time to talk today. Thank you, Marty. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org. Thank you.